Coming up this evening, live from New York City. A former Twitter executive turns whistleblower. He claims the company lied to Elon Musk about the fake accounts on its platform. He also says Twitter's security protections aren't up to standard. Ford cutting thousands of jobs as it tries to catch up with electric automaker Tesla. The Chinese military could, could soon be getting stronger because of U.S. tech exports. What could be done? With that and much more coming up on NTD Business. It's great to have you with us. Paul Graney here for NTD Business. Two big tech alternatives are teaming up for social media advertising. Former President Trump's social media platform, Truth Social, is now joining Rumble's new advertising platform. That means advertisers cannot buy ads on Truth Social through Rumble's ad center. Rumble describes itself as competition to Google's ad platforms, with Truth Social becoming the video sharing company's first publisher. Trump's ventures looking to sell ads while avoiding big tech firms like Google. Ads are key to Truth Social's business. An SEC filing earlier this year said the company may rely on the sale of ad services for the majority of its revenue. And Tesla's Elon Musk has subpoenaed Twitter founder Jack Dorsey ahead of the court battle over Twitter. It's according to court filings. It says Musk wants to walk away from his $44 billion deal to buy the tech company. Now he's seeking documents from the former Twitter CEO. According to a copy of the subpoena, Dorsey was asked for communications about the deal to buy the company and about spam accounts in the platform. Musk has alleged Twitter withheld the number of fake accounts, which he said is part of what he used to value the company initially. Twitter has denied Musk's allegations and declined to comment. Last month, Musk told Twitter he was ending the deal. The two sides have since sued each other, with the trial set to start in mid-October. Dorsey had tweeted support of Musk's buyout offer in April. The two men have agreed on the need for more transparency over Twitter's algorithm and allowing users more control over the content they see. And a new whistleblower could tip the balance of the Musk Twitter trial. He served as Twitter's security chief. Now he says the company has been lying about its handling of spam bots. He also claims the social media giant can't properly protect its users' data. Anthony's fake quarter has more. Peter Zatko is Twitter's former head of security and a hacker that goes by the name Mudge. He filed a whistleblower complaint with multiple federal authorities, including the Federal Trade Commission, or FTC. The complaint was obtained by The Washington Post and CNN this week. Zatko alleges that Twitter violated an 11-year-old settlement it had with the FTC. According to his complaint, Twitter falsely claimed that it had a solid security plan, when in reality, with far too many staff, about half of Twitter's 10,000 employees and growing, given access to sensitive live production systems and user data in order to do their jobs. Zatko gave an analogy of an airplane where all passengers are in control. All have access to the cockpit, to the controls, you know, that's entirely unnecessary. It might be easy, but there it's too easy to accidentally or intentionally turn an engine off. His complaint also alleges that Twitter places much more importance in growing the number of users rather than getting rid of spam bots. The company allegedly gave out bonuses as high as $10 million for executives who increased the number of daily users. 
A spokeswoman for Twitter responded saying the company removes 1 million spam bots every single day and that growing daily users is the smallest of three factors for earning cash bonuses. But Zetco alleges that Twitter lied to Elon Musk about the tech company's handling and knowledge of spam bots when the billionaire wanted to buy Twitter. He alleges Twitter didn't even have the resources to find out how many spam bots the company really has. This argument supports what Musk said in the past, that Twitter is underreporting its number of bots. Zatko's lawyer says their intention with the complaint wasn't to help Musk. Absolutely not. We've been following the news just like everyone else, uh, but that has nothing to do with his decisions or with the content of, uh, of what was sent in to U.S. law enforcement agencies. Twitter spokeswoman told The Post that Zatko's allegations seem to be riddled with inaccuracies. She says Zatko was fired in January after 15 months with the company for poor performance and leadership. She added that Twitter improved security extensively since 2020, that its security practices are within industry standards, and that it has specific rules about who can access company systems. Faye Quarter, NTD News. And a former Apple employee has pleaded guilty to stealing trade secrets. Xiao Lang Jiang worked in Apple's car division with the team that designed circuit boards for sensors. Circuit designs are one of the most valuable industry trade secrets. Apple had accused Jiang of downloading files about his car project, including a circuit board design. Jiang was then arrested back in 2018 when federal agents managed to stop him at the San Jose airport just as he was about to fly back to China. After pleading guilty, he could face up to 10 years in prison and a quarter million dollar fine. We'll keep you updated. And the U.S. has added seven more Chinese entities to its export control list, citing national security concerns. Commerce Department said today that most of these are Chinese aerospace entities, like China Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation or China Academy of Space Technology, among some others. Being on the export control list means that U.S. exports to these entities will need approval. Commerce Department said the Chinese entities were using U.S. exports in support of, quote, China's military modernization efforts. And here to talk to NTD's Don Ma about U.S. technology exports to China is Stephen Ezel. He's vice president for global innovation policy at ITIF. Stephen, thanks for coming today. So according to some reports, the U.S. continues to, chi- uh, to send to China semiconductors, aerospace parts, I- AI technology, though I think it's been slowing down a bit. Today, the U.S. Commerce Department said they added seven China aerospace entities to its export control list. So, Stephen, I- just break it down for us in-, in some detail. What is the current situation when it comes to tech transfers or exports to China? Well, I think the United States needs to adopt a nuanced approach uh, with regard to the products that are sold in China, as well as the technologies that can find their way from the United States to China. I mean, certainly the United States should adopt an approach that, you know, we can sell China fish so long as the fish are used in commercial marketplaces, and that's different than selling them the fishing equipment. What I mean by this is we certainly should have the ability to sell semiconductors in the Chinese market that are going to things like air conditioners or refrigerators. But for technologies that are not globally commercially or militarily available, 
where U.S. companies do hold the cutting edge in that technology, whether it's in avionics or artificial intelligence or quantum computing, then, yeah, we should look very specifically at ensuring those types of technologies uh, can't be sold uh, in China, whether on you know, either for you know, commercial or national security markets in China. So what the United States needs to adopt is a very sophisticated export control regime that ensures that only the most sensitive technologies and equipment that are going to find their way in the Chinese military, for instance, to confer a technological advantage are, are the ones that we're really focused on. Now, that does become very difficult because of China's military-civil fusion policy. Now, let's talk about a little, a little bit about the CHIPS Act. It was just, just recently signed into law, right? So yes. the current situation with, the, with you know, exports, tech exports, or other things, it seems to me China might get this technology even after, you know, you met last time we talked, you mentioned there were some safeguards, but is China still going to benefit to some degree from this act? I do think that the provisions in the legislation, which will their effectiveness will largely be determined by how effectively they're implemented by the Department of Commerce. But what the legislation does call for um, is that, quote, for a 10-year period beginning on the date of any CHIPS Act award, the covered entity will not engage in, quote, any significant transaction involving, quote, the material expansion of semiconductor manufacturing in China or any other foreign country of concern. I think that the, the guardrails that we've constructed them and we've put in place, uh, you know, will forestall any kind of immediate movement of a technology uh, developed uh, from the R&D and innovation programs envisioned in the CHIPS Act from finding their way to China. Now, certainly, I think over the long term, as knowledge is created and scientific publications are released with these like manufacturing processes, just the global stock of knowledge, yeah, well, ultimately, you know, China will find a way to tap into that. But the notion that companies benefiting from the CHIPS Act are going to be learning um, uh, new semiconductor manufacturing processes as part of like this national semiconductor technology consortium that we're building into the CHIPS Act, that that's that going to immediately find its way to China. Now, I don't think that's going to be the case. All right. So one last thing. I want to get your opinion on, on, on something. Do you think, in your opinion, we should, you know, put off the CHIPS Act until the U.S. has a, a working regime of export, export control? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, one reason, and perhaps the most important reason why, um, consider the facilities Intel is contemplating building in Ohio, the ones TSMC and also Intel are, are thinking about in Arizona. They have the footprint to uh, make these fabs six times larger than even currently anticipated. If they go for kind of the fullest implementation of these fabs, they're going to do so relying on the types of tax credits and incentive grants envisioned in chips. So to immediately start the process of capturing more global share in semiconductor manufacturing, we need to implement uh, the CHIPS Act immediately and concurrently in parallel work to strengthen export control regimes. All right. Great. Stephen Azell at Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. Pleasure talking to you today. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. And Shanghai's famous skyline went dark Monday. Lights were switched off in an effort to save power, with southwestern regions of China dealing with a shortage of hydropower output 
as well as surging household electricity demand during a long drought and heat wave. Shanghai's Riverside Bund area and parts of the Financial Center and the Oriental Pearl Tower were in near darkness. Electricity rationing came into effect on Monday and will last two days. Last week in China's Chongqing City, temperatures soaring to 113 degrees. It's hot. Down on Wall Street today, markets lower. The Dow lost 154 points, half a percent. S&P dropped a nine points to tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq pretty flat today. And more signs of the housing market cooling off. Newly built home sales dropping nearly 12.6% in July compared to the same month before is the second straight monthly decline. Comes as the median price to build a new home increased to just over $439,000. It's a $37,000 hike from June. Meanwhile, the average interest rate for a 30-year fixed mortgage was above 5% for the entire month of July. Carmaker Ford is cutting jobs in order to try and catch up with Tesla. Automaker said yesterday that 3,000 staff and contract jobs will be eliminated, mostly in North America and India. Ford's CEO said he believed the company was overstaffed and not enough of its workforce had the skills to shift to electric vehicles and digital services. Going forward, Ford wants to develop a broad lineup of EVs like Tesla. Ford wants to generate more revenue through services that depend on digital software and connectivity. Think apps in your car. The company has begun separating its operations into electric, combustion engine and commercial vehicle operations. Said staff cuts will affect all parts of the company. And here again to talk to NTD's Don Ma about the auto industry is Dave Opsel. He's been in the industry for 45 years. He's now the CEO of Actify. Actify is a company that helps automakers with design, engineering, and manufacturing information. Now, I understand you have thousands of customers. So tell me, how much have car makers done in terms of shifting their supply chains to make EVs? Well, it's not so much a shift that they have to make. It's that they have to accommodate, uh, you know, supply chain challenges they've never had to deal with before. You know, one of the differences in uh, an electric vehicle is the amount of software that's required to manage uh, the vehicle, all aspects of how it operates. To do that, you need semiconductors. Uh, supply chain in the automotive industry, for most of the suppliers, it's kind of a captive industry. They generally don't do a lot of work for other companies. They work strictly for the automotive industry. With the chip makers, it's very different. Uh, they work for everybody. You know, you have chips in everything from consumer electronics to household appliances. So the car makers are then having to compete with other people who want what it is that they need for the vehicles. That's a difference for them. That's not something they've had to deal with in the past. Right, right. Now let's talk a little bit more about supply chains. In a, in a mm -hmm. recent bill, President, President Biden signed, it requires the electric car to be made domestically, right? If they want to get uh, the tax credit incentive. How much of a challenge mm -hmm. is that for car makers? Can they make that happen? 
Well, they can. I think it depends on whether or not they've got manufacturing facilities already in place or whether it requires for them to build a new plant. In most cases, the assembly of the vehicle is quite different on an electric vehicle than it is on an internal combustion engine vehicle. You cannot easily take a line that's built for, say, an internal combustion engine vehicle and convert it to electric vehicles. So they can do it, but what they'll end up doing is having to construct new plants, and it's going to take time for them to be able to do that. How long do you predict it might take for them? Well, I think that, uh, you know, 2030 uh, is, I believe, what uh, some in, in the U.S. would like to see us do. I think that's going to be a bit of a challenge to be able to make, you know, that kind of an adjustment. That's seven years away. That's not very long. Okay, okay. What kind of innovations are you seeing in this industry that you're particularly excited about? Well, there's a couple of them that are really interesting. Uh, one of the things that's really starting to, uh, uh, you know, be used more and more is, you know, 3D printing. Uh, the idea that instead of cutting metal, you actually create it out of uh, what amounts to a, pot, a powder. Uh, you know, you're wasting almost nothing in the process of uh, doing that, and they're getting to the point where they can actually make uh, parts that way in volume, which has always been the challenge. I see. So, Dave, just just one last thing. You know, everyone's talking about inflation, worker shortages, rising interest rates, supply chain worries. So, I wonder what's the biggest challenge right now facing the auto industry. Well, from from where I sit, I think the biggest challenge that they've really got is around the labor shortage. Uh, you've got signs everywhere around Detroit, around Munich, where people are looking for for workers. They cannot fill all the spots they have. I've been doing this for 40 years, and I've never seen anything like the labor shortage that's going on in this industry. Supply chain will sort itself out, but the labor shortage, you know, is not something you can turn on by just adding another plant. You know, that takes years to resolve, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see uh, how the industry handles that. Yeah, you're right, Dave. It's a real, it's a real issue. Anyways, Dave Opsal, CEO at Actify, pleasure talking to you today. Likewise, thanks for having me. And still to come. Rising costs impacting wedding plans, forcing some couples to cut back on their big day. And holiday travel tips for fall and winter. One expert says now is the time to book your flights. We have that and much more coming up on NTD Business. Welcome back. Are you ready for some football? Well, if you're planning to tailgate, you better plan to pay up. It's going to cost you more this season, according to a new report from Wells Fargo. Apparently, the prices of a number of tailgating essentials have gone up because of inflation. Gas costs more, of course, and flying into an alma mater will cost more, too, with airfares up 28% since last year. Beer, also up nearly 5% since last July, and groceries are up 13%. And if you're grilling, propane and firewood up 22%. Still, economists say they expect plenty of parking lot parties this year. 
and maybe to save money up for hot dogs or pork ribs, which aren't as up, which aren't up as much as chicken or ground beef. And fresh fruits and veggies are a better bet compared to packaged snacks. And instead of watching the game in person, kick back and relax at home. TV prices are actually down. And first was the pandemic. Now inflation is having a big impact on weddings. Some couples say that they're changing their wedding plans due to the rising costs. According to planners, the cost of flowers is shot up due to severe weather and political turmoil in some export markets. Vendors note supply can't meet demand for pretty much everything. That includes rental furniture and linens to food and flowers. And when demand goes up, apparently so do prices. To deal with it, some couples say they're cutting down their guest lists, haggling more and searching for less expensive substitutes for the big day. Some have even repurposed Zoom celebrations as a cheaper way to include a bigger group of friends and relatives. <laughs> Zoom weddings still? The airline industry is still recovering from a chaotic summer travel season. Some people are still taking vacations to sunny destinations, but some travel industry leaders say now is the time to book your holiday travel. In today's Consumer Watch, why they recommend buying your fall and winter ticket airlines now and the one week this year that could offer you a hidden deal to fly overseas. It's August, and while some people are still enjoying summer vacations, some travel experts say it's time to book your fall and winter holiday flights. We are right in that Goldilocks window, and that's why we're seeing so many great deals. Scott Kays, founder of travel site Scott's Cheap Flights, says you can score hard-to-find deals now for your winter holiday trips. Everybody else is thinking about summer travel, Labor Day travel, and that's why now is the time when you actually do see some of those cheap holiday flights pop up. And some experts say there's reason to be optimistic when it comes to the cost of airfare. According to the latest consumer price index, average airline fares fell sharply in July compared to June, nearly 8%. I think it, there's reason to suspect that it's going to continue to fall further, in large part because the summer wave when travel is at its peak is largely behind us now. He also says if you already know where you're traveling to, do your research and track flight prices to get alerts when there's a price drop. And keep in mind that prices could soar the longer you wait. Just in the same way that winter jackets are gonna be cheapest if you purchase them in the summer, so too with those winter holiday flights. Always book opposite season. And if you're looking to do something completely different this year, Kay says one of the biggest deals you can find is during Thanksgiving week, if you fly international. It's actually a low season, the end of November, so you might actually pay the same price to fly to Buffalo as you pay to fly to Barcelona. One major sandwich chain is calling on customers to subscribe to their subs. Subway launching a subscription service called the Footlong Pass. People who pick them up will get 50% off all footlongs through September. The $15 passes go on sale Wednesday and there will be 10,000 available. And American consumers will finally get the chance to try avocados from Jalisco, Mexico. For 25 years, only a neighboring state has been authorized to send the green fruit to the U.S. market. And today's Andrew Thomas has the update. These 11 trucks are carrying 200 tons of avocados from Jalisco. 
Consistent production and the price for the fruit have fluctuated widely amid seasonal supply shortages. Mexico currently supplies about 92% of U.S. avocado imports. Mexico's Agriculture Department says it's working to get more states certified. The conditions are in place today, so there won't be any stumbling blocks because we are legally protected for our product to reach the United States. The Mexican harvest is from January through March. U.S. production runs from April to September. If we do things right today, the avocado industry will have many years ahead to do well. Jalisco Governor Enrique Alfaro said he would push to certify Jalisco avocados as free from deforestation, something Michoacan has been slow to do. The idea of pushing the agenda of certifying the avocado as a deforestation-free product should not just be a matter of the will of a few growers. We want to lay the groundwork to make it an obligation for everyone, for the good of the industry, for the good of the sector. At this point, Jalisco has only about 20,000 acres of avocado orchard certified as pest-free, a small amount compared to over nearly 300,000 acres in Michoacan. But Alfaro said another 65,000 acres in Jalisco are in line to be certified. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And finally this evening, the world's newest and biggest space telescope is showing Jupiter as never before. Auroras and all, Jupiter is the solar system's biggest planet. Now NASA says the new images for the James Webb Telescope will give scientists even more clues into its inner life. The images show aurora as a kind of magnetic glow extending to high altitudes above both the northern and southern poles of the planet. The great red spot, a storm so big it could swallow Earth, appears white in these views, as do other clouds, because they reflect a lot of sunlight. You can also see Jupiter's faint rings and two tiny moons. One of the older galaxies appearing in the background of the photo dates back about 13 billion years or so. Big Bang, the theoretical flashpoint that set the expansion of the known universe into motion, is measured at 13.8 billion years ago. That's the latest in the MTD business team and myself, Paul Graney. You can follow me on Twitter, though, if you're there. And also, if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, email us, business at ntd.com. That's all for today. Thank you for watching. We'll see you tomorrow.